From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back to On Health. This is Aviva Ram, and I'm so thrilled to be here with you and talk about something that you might be seeing a little bit more in the world of online psychology on Instagram. There are a lot of pop psychologists, some doing great work, who have cropped up, especially since the pandemic, some with millions of Instagram followers. It's quite an astonishing phenomenon. And it's really one that says we're all really needing some good mental health support in this time. One of the themes that's come up really recently is this idea of being a good girl and how being a good girl is really not to our benefit. It's an adaptive response and keeps us from really owning our power as mature women. It's something that I've been on about for years and wanted to share today an article that I wrote many years ago. It was some years after I completed my medical training. And the reason I'm doing this little caveat intro to it is because there are some medical stories that I share that I want to just give you a heads up on because a couple of them involve loss. And they're beautiful stories and powerful stories and important stories to hear and that I really wanted to share with you. This might be something that you know, you're not listening with your kids in the car, you're listening at a quiet time. And also if you've had a pregnancy loss in the past, or if you've lost a family member, you know, this certainly can bring up some sadness, but I do hope you'll listen. These are really important stories to me. They've been pivotal in my own life, people that I formed close relationships with and who also had a major impact on me in my trajectory as a healthcare provider and a healthcare activist. So I hope that this is really beautiful for you to listen to. I hope that you resonate with some of what I'm sharing and that there are some powerful take-homes that you can really take into your own life. And if you have daughters, pass this wisdom on to your daughters, sisters. If your mom is receptive, girlfriends, um, something to talk about. So I'm going to bring you how being a good girl can be hazardous to your health. Wonder Woman Act One. The first time I recall exercising my personal power and realizing it could have an impact, including on adults, was in the third grade. Mrs. Akron, my third grade teacher, was well-meaning, but a bit of a tart. She was always pinched, always strict, always stern. But I was smart, and I was one of her pets. She especially loved my artwork and requested, or more accurately insisted, that several paintings I'd done in school art class portraying women in Victorian clothing be displayed in the glass cases lining the halls of PS201, my elementary school in Pominock, Flushing, Queens. Mrs. Akron had promised me that I could take my artwork home at the end of the school year. 
But on that fateful last day of school in late June, she flat out refused to give my paintings back, saying they belonged to the school, not me. I was outraged. Outraged. I planted my third grader hands on my third grader hips, my third grader feet hip width apart, my first ever, though unintentional, invocation of the Wonder Woman pose in her classroom and refused to leave until she handed over my paintings. I mean, I was resolute. I wouldn't budge and was ultimately escorted by her, somewhat forcefully by the elbow, to the principal's office down the hall. My single working mom had to leave her job to fetch me from the principal's office. When she arrived nearly an hour later because of the commute, she asked the now very disgruntled Mrs. Akron, still late at work because of me, if the artwork was indeed mine. Yes, said Mrs. Akron. She painted those pictures. Did you tell her she could have the paintings back at the end of the school year, my mom asked? Yes, said Mrs. Akron, to which my mother matter-of-factly replied, well, then give them back to her. I was heard, validated, and justice prevailed. I left school that day and that year, both with my artwork and the value of being a badass very much intact, as well as the importance of validating other girls and women. Wonder Woman Act Two. As a home birth midwife, my self-efficacy served me well. First of all, where I practiced in Georgia, home birth midwifery was illegal. Where one births and with whom is a fundamental right. And to this day, Georgia not only remains an illegal state for midwives, but the state with the worst maternal and infant outcomes at birth and has 78 counties with no OB-GYNs, none. So I chose to go where, well, no men were willing to go, home birth and home birth midwifery. Further, the disenfranchisement of home birth from the medical system, especially pronounced when there was a transfer from home to hospital at times, required me to protect my clients from unnecessary medical procedures or tough interfaces with an historically home birth averse medical community. Tina was one such mom in which I had to practice this protective mechanism. Tina medically needed to have her baby in the hospital due to a serious condition called RH isoimmunization that had developed as the result of a previous fetal loss, which had occurred in the setting of conventional medical care and was largely unpreventable. Tina asked me to be with her for the labor. Initially, she wanted a home birth, but I really told her that wasn't possible given the history, but she asked if I would be with her in the hospital for moral support, and I agreed. Because of this complication, she'd required numerous tests and interventions throughout the pregnancy, which she graciously and gratefully underwent to protect this baby. But she didn't want interventions she didn't need, including an episiotomy when she gave birth. At that time, episiotomies, which are still overdone, but were done to 90% or more of women birthing in hospitals. And as midwives knew then, and the obstetric world now acknowledges, they are and were almost never necessary. When Tina was moments away from pushing her baby's head out, after a peaceful eight-hour labor, the obstetrician, sitting on a low stool at the foot of the bed, his six-foot, six-inch frame taking up the entire space between her legs in stirrups, picked up his episiotomy scissors from his instrument tray and prepared to cut her perineum. I quickly and gently reminded Dr. Green, when I'd previously asked the nurses, by the way, his name, one nurse curtly replied, doctor, such is the protected medical hierarchy, 
that Tina had requested no episiotomy, at which time Dr. Green looked me squarely in the eyes, scissors in hand, right there at her perineum, and said, Miss, I'll do one if I damn well please. My inner Wonder Woman that I had channeled first in third grade and had used many times as a midwife spun into action faster than I could think. Immediately, instinctively, decisively, I put my hand like a warrior shield right over Tina's perineum, blocking the path of the scissors, and looked Dr. Green resolutely back in the eyes and said, well, then you're going to have to cut through me to get to her. She didn't have an episiotomy. It was like a she-bear with threatened cubs had possessed me. He visibly gulped, dropped his eyes, and put his scissors neatly back onto the tray. Tina birthed her beautiful, healthy, eight-pound-plus son moments later over an intact perineum. I was told weeks later that Dr. Green was so impressed by my grit and protectiveness that he was hiring midwives to join his practice. Why I Won't Stand Down, A Painful Lesson As a medical student, things changed. At first, I hid my fierceness, tried to fit in and not make waves. I was polite, at times even contrite, not my MO as a brassy New Yorker, but I didn't openly question my professors and attendings' decisions. I simply watched, learned, and made mental notes on what I would or wouldn't do with my own patients. After all, I wasn't a fully-fledged doctor when I started, and I was taking care of patients who were ultimately their legal responsibility. I was already different, too. The older, hippie midwife herbalist in medical training at Yale. So I remained generally respectfully quiet as if I were a guest in someone's home. But it was more than that, too. Medical training and medicine as a whole are cultures in which fear is used as a tactic to get people to comply, medical students and patients amongst those people. In the scheme of fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, the common range of stress response patterns, fawning, is the expected response of medical students to the system. If you're a woman, and even more so a woman of color, the pressure to remain silent is great. We are still expected to be seen and not heard and to never fulfill someone else's biases of women or black women as being loud, shrill, difficult, or a bitch. Even with all of my medical knowledge and experience as a midwife, I was unprepared for just how many medical errors really do happen in the hospital and doctor's offices, and just how many are overlooked because nobody wants to be the one to point a finger, to make waves, to stand out, to be the messenger that gets blamed. It can be a toxic culture, and doctors in training, nurses, family members, and patients are discouraged from the if-you-see-it-say-it motto, even when one's patients or personal health is in jeopardy. For example, there was the time I went to round in the morning and found my patient's note hanging on the door of the room, and which I read before I entered. It said my patient's chemotherapy IV had been started that morning. But here's the thing. My patient didn't have cancer or any condition for which she was scheduled to receive chemotherapy. Much to my relief, when I entered the room, I found that the error was in the note, not in the actual delivery of the medication. My patient was comfortably tucked in her bed, no IV, while her neighbor had the appropriate treatment running into her fragile veins from the IV bag hanging just above her on its silver metal pole. 
Someone had just entered the medication into the wrong chart, not given it to the wrong patient. I exhaled. Crisis averted. I let the team know what had happened. The response? Well, all's well that ends well, I was told. That time. In my last year of medical school, all of that compliance changed irrevocably for me. I learned in the most painful way that it doesn't always end well and that we can never remain silent, can never place fear of repercussions over getting loud when needed, of putting on our Wonder Woman capes, crowns, and unleashing our lassos of truth when someone else needs us to advocate for them. Akiko was one of the loveliest women I've ever met. A gentle, soft-spoken, but strong Japanese woman in her 50s, she raised orchids, had raised two sons who were now in their early 20s and adored her, and had a tender, long-term relationship with her husband. Akiko had been in the hospital for weeks after a bone marrow transplant left her immunologically vulnerable from the cancer that she was being treated for successfully. On strong immunosuppressive medications, she was weaning off and was finally going home at the end of the week. But on Monday afternoon of her hospital discharge week, which the family was excitedly anticipating, Akiko spiked a high fever. Her oncologist, a world-famous liquid tumor specialist, who has more recently assumed a major U.S. government position in COVID-19 strategy and response, no, not Dr. Fauci, said it was from her treatment and that I just shouldn't worry about it. My instincts and clinical judgment told me otherwise. In fact, my gut was screaming. On Tuesday morning, Akiko again spiked a fever and was started on antibiotics, but they did nothing. She also began reporting right upper abdominal pain. I told my supervising resident and the oncologist that I'd like to order an ultrasound of her gallbladder, thinking she had a gallbladder obstruction or infection in the tubes that enter the gallbladder. They said no, and when I pushed it with the resident a few hours later, when Akiko's temperature was now 104 degrees, the resident told me that if famous oncologist thinks nothing is wrong, then nothing is wrong and I should back down. This scenario went into Wednesday with fevers spiking and falling and the abdominal pain worsening. Akiko was now coughing and having difficulty breathing. So I ordered a chest x-ray when neither my resident nor famous doctor were on the floor. I sat at her bedside, held her hand. She was no longer telling me about her sons and her orchids. She was listless, tired, waxing and waning in and out of consciousness. The results came back. She had developed acute respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS, a severe, sudden injury to the lungs caused by a serious illness, the one we're now familiar with as a result of it also being common in COVID-19. And though this was nearly two decades ago, it was the same well-known deadly complication. In her case, it was caused by a necrotizing infection in her gallbladder that was seen at the edges of the x-ray I had ordered and that was causing the abdominal pain and fevers. It wasn't her chemotherapy or anything else. She was now life-threateningly ill. Life support with mechanical ventilation was needed. I was patted on the back, literally, by famous oncologists who said, good catch, doctor, to me. Akiko was taken to the ICU. She never left the hospital. She died the next day. Her family later sent me the most loving letter, thanking me for my loving support. I have it still and I reread it every couple of years, and remember Akiko, and remember never to be silent no matter the consequences. My inner wise woman, my wonder woman, born when I was a young girl, has been my inner guide and has been ever more strengthened so as such as the result of Akiko's unnecessary death. 
She's my most trusted personal advisor. When I need help speaking up, she's who I channel. She's my version of Beyonce's Sasha Fierce. The bad girl and the brain hemorrhage. Just weeks later, on the same hospital rotation with that same attending oncologist, my patient, a put-together, even-in-the-hospital, pixie-cut, silver-haired English teacher in her mid-60s being treated for cancer, noticed that she'd been slurring her speech very slightly for the past hour or so, which she reported to me on my morning rounds. I did a routine neurologic exam immediately at her bedside, noticing a subtle but definite deficit in what is called rapid alternating motion test on her left side. This can indicate a problem in the cerebellum region of the brain. I immediately notified her oncologist, my attending, and told him I felt she needed urgent imaging. And he said, oh, it's just the chemotherapy probably causing her to have a little brain fog. We call it chemo brain. Deja vu. I don't think so, I said. It's a definite change. She and I both notice it. So does her boyfriend. He said nothing and looked at me as if I were an irritating child. Wonder Woman took hold. Like I did in third grade, I stood there, hands on hips, feet firmly planted, and said, look, just a few weeks ago, a patient died here because her symptoms weren't explored quickly enough. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to go on record here that I think something is seriously wrong and you're refusing a test. As a medical student, I couldn't authorize the test without his consent. He looked at me shocked and barked, okay, get an MRI. I ordered one stat and quickly received an emergency page from radiology. Radiology calls only come back that quickly when something is really, really wrong. The radiologist at the other end of the line said, hey, I just want you to know that I've alerted the neurosurgery team about your patient. They'll be on the floor in minutes to bring her to the OR. She has a hemorrhage in her cerebellum. My patient had a bleed the size of an orange in the back of her brain. Emergency surgery saved her life and her brain, and she recovered completely and beautifully. Tears still spill from my eyes as I write this, and I can't help think how different it might have been for Akiko, and how different it might have been for my beautiful silverhead patient had I not put hands on hips and stood there stalwart, and for so many others if they don't have someone to fight for them when they're the most vulnerable. How important it is to speak up for ourselves, even when we're perceived as being the squeaky wheel or worse. Because it's not just these potentially life-threatening diagnoses that are missed. It's the everyday stuff that women are living with. Hashimoto's and other autoimmune conditions that can take years to get diagnosed. Endometriosis, which can cause severe pain. So many symptoms from depression and autoimmune conditions to more. Fertility challenges. Yet takes on average seven to nine years to receive a diagnosis for. And the list goes on. And it's mostly conditions that primarily affect women that are missed, and for which women are dismissed. Why it's good to be a bad patient and a bad girl. This episode is not about how clever I am as a diagnostician or how fierce I am. It's about how not speaking up can cost someone their life and can leave us feeling victimized and incompetent, even in common, everyday settings. From our earliest years, we're taught to be good girls. We're told to be polite, to be nice, to not interrupt, to say thank you, and even fake appreciation when we don't like something, to be pleasant. 
We're taught that when boys bully us, it's because they like us. We're told to give Uncle Charlie a kiss on the cheek, even if we don't want to. We're directly and tacitly taught not to make waves, to be seen and not heard, to not question authority, not stand up for our rights, not be bossy, not show our power, to dress down except when we're supposed to dress up, and to say yes to everything we're asked to do, including unwanted work advances from people in authority, and to not take any of it too seriously, too personally, and all the while to smile. The list of how we're taught to be good is endless. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be decent citizens with good manners. But as I've taught my own daughters, there's a difference between being nice and being kind. Being kind is respect for humanity. Being nice is all the rest of it. I like how Brene Brown says clear is kind. Speaking up and not accepting what feels wrong is also unkind to ourselves. Our inner good girl usually starts at home, follows us through school, and stays with us for our whole lives until we free her. She comes with us into the doctor's office and the hospital. She's with us in our jobs, in our workplaces and business dealings, and even in our most intimate personal relationships. She keeps us from being fully clear and honest, and she keeps us playing small. And in healthcare, she can keep us from getting proper diagnoses and care. And that's what I'm here to talk about today. You see, the good girl trope translates into being a good patient. Good girls don't question authority, don't challenge the need for the test, the diagnosis, or the treatment, don't say, no, I don't want you to examine me, or thank you, I'll just leave on my own clothing on top for the pap smear and I'll cover with a drape, rather than wearing that insulting paper gown with my rear end flapping in the wind. They don't say, I think I'll labor for a bit longer, thank you, we can revisit the epidural later if I want one. And while we're at it, I'll be walking around to help my labor move along rather than being strapped into the bed with a fetal monitor or an IV unless it's medically necessary. Or no, this symptom is definitely not all in my head and it's not just depression. I really am tired, losing hair, and I'm gaining weight for no reason. I think maybe it's a thyroid problem. Many a good girl has suffered for months, even years, with symptoms of depression, weight gain, hair loss, low immunity, dry skin, constipation, and postpartum problems because she didn't know she could insist on testing for a thyroid problem, or maybe that a different medication or a medication at all was needed. And again, the list goes on. Now, keep in mind, none of this is our fault. It's not because we're good girls that all of this is happening. This is a system that we enter into in a culture that that system is part of. But the thing is, doctors and nurses, just like parents and teachers, favor the good girl patients. And they dread those that in common medical parlance are known as difficult patients. Compliant is the word used to describe cooperative patients who do what the doctor or nurse tells them. And I promise you, it comes out in how patients are treated. Eyes quite literally roll and groans are audible when a quote unquote difficult patient comes into the office or hospital. Difficult translates as the mother who questions whether the antibiotic is really needed for the ear infection rather than a watch and wait approach for 24 hours. The pregnant woman who asks her doctor what his or her cesarean section rate is so she can be informed or who comes into the hospital with a birth plan and is ridiculed about it or any of us who even question the need for a test, a medication, or a surgery, or ask for it when we need something and are denied it. How many of us have been bullied into a test or procedure that we didn't want or feel was warranted by a doctor or a dentist, 
made to feel silly, difficult, childish, sheepish, stupid, irrational, or overreacting. These things happen every day to different degrees in medical settings. It's bullying. And we get victimized because we're afraid to speak our truth and hold our ground, which, yes, is hard. But it must be done if we're ever going to change the culture of healthcare for ourselves, our mothers, our sisters, our friends, our daughters, and those most vulnerable to medical mistreatment, those who are gay, trans, don't fit into weight norms that are expected in our culture, black, brown, disabled, suffered from mental health challenges. These are all people who are most likely to be victimized by these biases in medicine and by this mistreatment. It can be done politely, but sometimes we really do need to speak up firmly and definitively. Nice and kind are different. I also want to be really clear that this episode is not about doctor bashing or medical system bashing. There are some wonderful physicians out there, including the one who was taking care of my patients on the oncology ward. But there are systemic issues and individual issues that these issues that I'm sharing today really do raise and need to be addressed. We know that there is a rampant number of medical errors that happen that also go covered up and unreported. And we know that there's a rampant amount of medical disrespect for a number of different populations and particularly women. So I don't want this episode to raise fear or raise anxiety. But I do really want us to be aware of the reality, right, of the truth. And the point of this episode is really to help you learn how to be empowered so that you can walk into a medical setting or any setting, any relationship, and know how to protect yourself, protect someone you love, and get what you need and want and not get what you don't need and don't want. The Wonder Woman Pose and Other Power Tools for Girls and Women Learning to say no and doing so without apology or explanation or insisting on something we really feel we need, that thyroid test, to eat and labor, to wait 24 hours with a common one-sided ear infection in a toddler before starting an antibiotic isn't easy. It takes practice. It takes growing our confidence because it can be uncomfortable. We might worry that people won't like us. Our doctor might seem irritated by us. You might even sweat or your heart rate might go up before you say no or have to insist on something the first few times you try it. But remember, fear is a primal reaction that's meant to keep us safe, both as a warning system and as a source of adrenaline that can fill us with energy, strength, and courage. It can also make us feel anxious and make our heart rates go up. So we don't have to just because we feel those symptoms of adrenaline back down and we can reframe them. We can reframe that quickened heart rate, that quickened respiratory rate, that little bit of anxiety as our power rising, our strength rising. It's that adrenaline. It's a survival mode and it can save lives. We sometimes learn to be good girls very young before we even consciously know what we're doing. In many family settings, this becomes our default mode that keeps us safe. It's common when there's an emotionally or mentally unwell parent, sometimes an alcoholic parent or one with a personality disorder, keeping the peace, being good, playing small, complying. All of these behaviors may have kept savage beasts calm or kept the peace or may have been what gained us praise or even love. 
It may have also been a way of self-differentiating in a family system with multiple siblings. Often one sibling does take the role of the good child, often the good girl. It may also be a way we vicariously fulfill our parents' dreams. We're so good in school, at work, in every setting, and this becomes a mean to our success and our approval of a sort. So what do you do when you're faced with a situation where you need to speak your truth, where you need to ask for or insist on what you need or on what you don't want? When you feel fear rising, rather than get stuck in fight or flight mode, try the following steps that I'm going to share with you to transmute that into applied power. First, quickly notice the feelings in your body and how they make you want to react. Simply take that moment to recognize, is your heart racing? Is your respiratory rate racing? Is your back going up? Literally, are your shoulders going up to your ears? Are you cringing? Are you making a fist? Are you feeling like you want to hit the person across from you or run away? Just simply notice because noticing is the first step to becoming aware of our interoceptive power, the ability of information coming from our body sensations to our brain as an information source. So take notice of those feelings, then simply take several deep breaths. I like the number four. It's a nice amount of time if you take four deep breaths. Breathe deeply into your belly, letting your belly rise with the in-breath and fall with the out-breath. If you can close your eyes even for just one of those breaths, do it. Calm your racing heart by using your breath to bring you a little bit more into a parasympathetic mode. In this mode, you actually can harness the energy that's rising in you, but you can do it in an intentional, calmer, deliberate, and more effective way. So right then and there in the moment, you've noticed how you're feeling and you take several, maybe four deep breaths, maybe one of those with your eyes closed. If you need to do this really subtly, you can just do it right then and there with your eyes open. Simply slow yourself down, hit pause before that reaction happens. Now, ease into Wonder Woman pose. Amy Cuddy's groundbreaking research on poses shows that what I was doing as a little girl probably wasn't accidental. It was intuitive. She's shown through her research that the Wonder Woman pose is associated with increased confidence and courage. So consciously feel your feet on the floor as you start to take those breaths, let that breath go through your body down to the ground. Put your hands squarely on your hips. Feel the strength of the earth and the power of all women on the earth and who have come before rising up in you gently simultaneously find your center and grounding. If you're sitting, you can stand up or you can take the position in your mind if you're in a chair or on an exam table, if you feel like you can't actually put your hands on your hips. But heck, you can do it. You can sit there right on the exam table with your hands on your hips. You can be in pap smear position with your hands on your hips. You just get into that position. If Wonder Woman doesn't resonate with you, that's cool. Find what does. Beyonce has Sasha Fierce, her powerful, not so good girl alter ego. Find your inner badassness and learn how to invoke her when you need her. This is great to practice any time you have to speak up before public speaking events 
or applying for a job or asking for a raise. Anytime you're about to have a difficult conversation and the more you do it, the more power association grows because what's wired together in our brain fires together. So the more you take that Wonder Woman position, the more you take those deep breaths, the more you learn to harness and control your ability to manage your fight or flight, freeze or fawn, and use it for power. Next, take a deep breath. You can stay in that Wonder Woman position if you want to, or you can release it. There are some advantages to releasing it because some studies have shown that, for example, in a job interview, a woman who comes off too powerful, whether to another man or to another woman, may actually be threatening. So this is something I sometimes say if you're going in for a job interview or a school interview, go into the restroom, go to a quiet room or a corner somewhere, do your Wonder Woman pose right then and then go into the setting. But if you're in an in-the-moment setting, like in a medical office, and it, you know it's your body, it's your rules, it's your child's or your mother's, your sister's, that is an appropriate time to do the Wonder Woman pose right there. After you've gotten into the position, after you've done the deep breaths, take that deep breath and say what you need to say. Say it strongly, clearly, and firmly coming from your diaphragm, coming from that rootedness of the earth. Look, Easing into icy water is never as effective as just jumping in. So imagine you're taking the plunge and just say what you need to say. Now, all of this does raise up our adrenaline. It raises up our cortisol temporarily. So when you're done with the situation, step away and decompress from the intensity of using your power in this way. Take some more deep breaths. Step outside if you need to. Slow your roll a little bit. Give yourself permission to pause from the situation so that you're not carrying it with you until later. And congratulate yourself for speaking your truth and having courage. Practice with small stuff. For example, speaking up about overly salted food that you really want to send back at a restaurant. Or honestly telling the person that's giving you the pedicure when you really went in to get that pedicure and close your eyes and listen quietly to some music that you'd really love a quiet moment to yourself rather than hearing about her love life. You don't have to say that part. Or saying no thank you the next time you're invited to something that you really don't want to go to rather than going and wishing you were anywhere else. It takes practice telling the truth, speaking up for ourselves, finding our power to truly be in alignment with what we feel and what we say and what we accept. It means we have to let our inner good girl grow up into a badass woman. And that good girl has probably been with you for a long, long time. So it takes some time to relearn how to walk in big woman shoes. But doing so might be transformative for you in so many areas of your life. And it could be life-saving for someone you know. You'll get there. We all will. It's easier if we make the mutual commitment to do it together. In doing so, we'll change the medical system, which is in bad need of a makeover. And we'll change our culture. Clear is kind. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, 
you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.